Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. So yesterday, CPRA had their monthly board meeting right here, here in New Orleans. Orleans. Mm-hmm. How was it? It was at. Uh, it was nice. It was in the. Um, it was in City Park. Uh, the agenda largely centered around hurricane protection. Um, they had some folks from the Corps of Engineers come in from some of the local levy districts to give updates and provide information uh and so it was a good discussion and just a reminder you can always watch those on facebook uh facebook live and then you can find that information back um online they archive the presentations uh and they post them online if you're not able to see coastal.la.gov coastal.la.gov that's great well i'm so excited to dig into the topic um that we're discussing about birds discussing today yes birds but uh restoration and conservation broadly across the Gulf. So in case you missed it, uh, Audubon released a Gulf conservation plan last week that really outlines a lot of those priorities. And we're excited to have on the person that was the lead on this report and the plan. And a beautiful kind of our, report, by the way. Oh, yes. Um, uh, and our overall Gulf restoration and conservation efforts. Um, no stranger to issues here in Louisiana and across the Gulf. Um, Kara Lankford, Director of Gulf Coast Restoration um, with National Audubon Society. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Kara. How's it going? Hey. Good. How are you? Good. So, Kara, um, we're here in the Mississippi River Delta, but you you live more close to the Mobile Bay Delta. So you grew the up... Real Mar- <laughs> the first Mardi Gras, not well, the real Mardi Gras. We can get into that debate <laughs> or not. But, <laughs> I mean, what's it like growing up and living on the Gulf Coast and working on issues related to Gulf Coast restoration and conservation? Yeah, so growing up in Mobile, obviously, you know, recreation was fishing in the bay, and going to the beach on the weekend. Um, so I have so many fond memories about growing up on the Gulf of Mexico. It really is just a way of life. Um, I think it's a really unique and special culture. And I think, you know, wherever you grow up on the Gulf of Mexico, there are lots of similarities and lots of unique things like New Orleans. You know, it's so um, known for food and just this incredible um, culture and um, you know, South Florida, palm trees. And so it's just, it's such a special environment and so unique wherever you grow up. But I do think we share this love for the ecosystem around the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, thankfully in your role, you get to travel around the Gulf uh, quite frequently. And you are no stranger to issues of the Gulf. You were at the Ocean Conservancy for a while before coming to Audubon. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I actually started my career um, fresh out of college working for the Mobile Bay National Estuary Program. I was a project manager there. We did all sorts of um, wetland restoration, stream restoration, community projects. Um, And then I moved on to work for the Baldwin County Commission in Alabama, where um, I was actually working there during the BP oil spill and was in charge of putting out um, just thousands and thousands of feet of boom and, um, you know, going up in Blackhawk helicopters, monitoring the oil situation off the Alabama coast. And then I got the call from Ocean Conservancy and had the opportunity to work on marine restoration issues in the wake of the BP disaster. So, yeah, I was there for seven years and um, was director of their Gulf restoration program. And then I'm so thrilled to be working for Audubon and, you know, learning about bird issues. I wasn't necessarily a bird expert and certainly don't claim to be. We have an incredible team of scientists at Audubon that um, that um, helps to teach me about birds. But the overall um, just restoration 
education in general, um, it's so nice that I get to do this every day. I feel so lucky that this is a part of my, you know, everyday work world and doing something that I love at a place that I just, you know, feel passionate about protecting and restoring. Well, don't worry. Simone is no bird expert either. I was just going (laughs) to totally claim to be one because I'm around them so much. And we have Eric Johnson on the show so much that I am. I am. I'm a bird expert you're, in the Malaw's household. There let me you tell go. you that. There you go. <laughs> well, so Kara, so I mean, now you're working obviously a, mo- a lot closer to shore, even though there's some open ocean species we can talk about. But, um, you know, how is it, you know, having worked on golf conservation issues for so long, I mean, before the oil spill, d- during the oil spill, and then after, and then to be at this stage right now where you're seeing like projects get funded and, you know, you're seeing kind of what's happening in terms of restoration and recovery. Yeah, it's almost surreal. You know, we always talk about those of us that worked on environmental issues prior to the oil spill. Your career took a complete change in trajectory. You know, it it changed your world. It rocked your world. It was absolutely devastating. Um, And in many cases, it feels like it was 25 years ago and then it feels like it was just yesterday at the same time. And um, so, yeah, it's um, it's been quite the ride, quite the whirlwind. And, you know, looking back, here we are nearly nine years after the BP oil spill. And um, it's definitely the long game. You know, we're we're in a in a marathon and not a sprint when it comes to golf recovery. Um, this has never been attempted before, um, which is a daunting task. Recovery restoration of a large marine ecosystem of this size has not been done. So we're really setting a standard. We're setting an example for how to do restoration at this scale. And that is scary, but it's also so exciting to be a part of this. So where does the report that Audubon released last week, um, Audubon's vision, restoring the Gulf of Mexico for birds and people, um, where does that fit into all of this? Yeah, you know, so that we call it our five-year vision. Um, for restoring the Gulf of Mexico for birds and people. Um, And, you know, I think planning on the front end is absolutely crucial when you think about recovery and restoration at this size and scale. So Audubon brought our best science to bear and put together a suite of 30 restoration, um, conservation, stewardship, and research projects totaling just over $1.7 billion dollars and accounting for about 136,000 acres of restored and or conserved habitat for Audubon's 11 Gulf flagship species. Yeah, and so, um, you know, if folks want to check out that report, they can go to audubon.org slash golf, and it's all there as as well as um, executive summary and some other information. But um, you mentioned flagship species, so talk to us about that. Like, what, what are flagship species and why are they important, um, particularly in in thinking about restoration and conservation? Sure. I think another way to think about Audubon's 11 flagship species is that they are ambassadors or representatives of about 300 other species that utilize those same habitats. But these are birds that we can focus on. Um, They kind of carry the flag as ambassadors for those other species. Great. And um, give us a few examples of those just so folks can understand. Yeah. So black skimmer, piping plover, one of my favorites, which is the reddish egret, um, semi-palmated sandpiper. So it kind of runs the gamut of birds that um, migrate through the Gulf of Mexico over winter in the Gulf of Mexico and nest in the Gulf of Mexico. 
And uh, Simone, what is your favorite Audubon Gulf flagship species? Um, the um, reddish egret for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, they're they're beautiful. I do like me some piping plovers though. They're cute little guys. <laughs> yeah, they are cute. Least turns. Good yeah, job. Um, that's, an, that's another one. See, okay, maybe more than uh, not a novice, <laughs> not an expert, somewhere in between. Um, so, Osmosis. Kara, so, Kara, the the plan was released uh, last week. Um, there's been a lot of really great media coverage, mm-hmm. and I know you've Lots been of ink. talking to a lot of people. But what happens now? So now we move on to the fun part of implementation of these thirty projects. Um, So this is, like I said, kind of a five-year vision. So we hope within that period to have, if not all, the majority of these projects funded and on the ground implemented for bird recovery in the Gulf. Great. And I definitely want to talk about, you know, how these projects get funded, you know, maybe giving some highlights of the different projects and how they came about, um, and also learning a little bit more about um, kind of your, your work at Audubon. But we're about to head into a break. Do you mind hanging on? And we'll be right back talking more about Audubon's Golf Conservation Plan. Sure. Happy to. All right. And if you want to check it out, you can go to audubon.org slash golf um, and read all about the report, its recommendations, learn up on the flagship species. Maybe we'll have a quiz when we come back, Simone, <laughs> um, and all of that. So we're, we're here with Kara Langford, Director of Gulf Coast Restoration with National Audubon Society. We'll be right back after the break. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. 
We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Aver with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore Retreat. Kara, I have a um, fun question for you. If you ever listen to the show, we get to know a lot about our guests with these fun questions. This is probably a little tougher than most, though. Um, Jacques and I want to know, um, in your opinion, um, what makes Mobile Mardi Gras better than New Orleans Mardi Gras? Oh, well. <laughs> or distinct. Distinct. He's kind. Better than the other. Just, <laughs> you know, being politically correct. Um, I have experienced both. Uh, and I mean, you'll so, have parades and stuff. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, okay. The city shuts down. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a big deal. Um, but I will say, given that it's, you know, it's a smaller population in the city of Mobile, it's a little bit easier to park and navigate. It's still a challenge, but, you know, just from what I've experienced in New Orleans, like, don't even try to park your car. Right? <laughs> That's it's true. It's just out of control. Well, you should ride your blue bike. There. Yeah, ride your blue bike. Um, but, you know, Mobile, you get there an hour before the parade. You can totally find some parking. So it's just not quite as um busy i guess but but definitely the fun level but they do ride in floats they throw things off the floats you catch them it's (laughs) exactly the same okay i don't know i have this in my head it's like lots of lots of beads lots of moon pies Mm -hmm. balls um yeah it's it's big yeah there's some really old carnival organizations in mobile i think i don't know i thought like there's some boat aspect to it (laughs) mardi gras was in mobile although that might be controversial Okay, Kara, good answer. <laughs> I, I, I was curious about uh, about Mardi Gras. Now let's talk about some restoration. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Kara, before we dive back into the plan, you had the opportunity to visit a very special place on Louisiana's coast, the Chandelure Islands. Tell us about that. Oh, it was so incredible. First of all, we got to fly in a seaplane, which I've never done before. Um, I did take my Dramamine. (laughs) Good girl. (laughs) Um, But it was just, you know, that experience in and of itself was really amazing, taking off from the water, landing in the water. And then we find ourselves in this, you know, for lack of a better term, it's like an oasis. I know Mm -hmm. that it's it's a plot of Mm -hmm. land in the middle of of the, you know, the Gulf. It's a barrier island. Um, But it's just in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, you look to the north and you can see the the Gulfport, Mississippi skyline and, you know, New Orleans, you know, is off to your west. And there are just birds galore out there. And there's lots of canals that kind of make their way meandering through the barrier island chain. And we, you know, we parked the plane and got off and all of a sudden this big wave kind of comes in through one of the canals and I look over and it's this big bottle of dolphin and he's uh. swimming around and it was just this surreal moment um, in this beautiful place and certainly reminded me why I do this work, you know, just a great, great experience. Wow. And, you know, to tease for folks who may be listening, um, Kara was out there with a reporter and a photographer from Audubon Magazine. So, oh, you know, ooh, it's going to be a beautiful great spread. feature yes, in our do. spring issue um, about this work, but also, you know, kind of highlighting the Chandelier Islands as one of the priority projects that um, have, have been recommended through the plan. So getting to that, Kara, um, the projects that are being recommended, I mean, they're split by state, regionally, and then open ocean. So talk to us a little bit about those different types of projects. Yeah, so there are 16 state-based projects that, you know, span all five states, but each project is encompassed within that geographic boundary of that state border. 
Um, there are 10 region-wide projects that span multiple states and sometimes span the entire Gulf of Mexico. And then there are open ocean projects. And for birds, what that really means is many of the birds that were injured by the BP oil spill don't nest here. They just spend a portion of their life either migrating through or overwintering here in the Gulf of Mexico, and they nest elsewhere. So getting your biggest thing for your buck when you're thinking about recovery of a species really is to target where they nest. And like I said, for some of these birds, that is outside of the Gulf of Mexico. So those open ocean species or open ocean category targets those birds. And so we're going to talk to Eric Johnson in a few minutes about some of the Louisiana projects, but give us an example of like a region-wide project. Um, I think those are so exciting Mm -hmm. because, you know, birds don't know geographic or political boundaries. And so their needs extend beyond states. So what are some of those examples? Yeah, one of, well, my favorite project in the plan is a region-wide project, and it's Audubon's Coastal Bird Stewardship Program. And it's actually a program that I just learned about when I came to work for Audubon, which is interesting because, you know, I've I've been doing conservation work for quite some time in the Gulf of Mexico, but just wasn't aware of this incredible project and this incredible work that Audubon has been doing for many, many years. Um, And this, you know, the reason it's in here is to ensure that its funding is continued. But it's, like I said, the Coastal bird stewardship program. So Audubon staff and volunteers across the Gulf of Mexico work to protect these beach nesting birds during nesting season from predators and from human encroachment. Uh, Many times, you know, these fragile little shorebird eggs blend in perfectly with the sand in the Gulf of Mexico. So you really can't see them. Even if you're really looking for them, it's, it's easy to miss. And the babies, the same, they blend in right in with the sand. And you can, you know, if you've ever been to the beach in the Gulf of Mexico, where I live in Alabama, it's like an anthill of people in the summertime. So there's people everywhere. And these little shorebirds are trying to nest at the exact same time that we want to be out there sunbathing. <laughs> so, so our volunteers, our staff work tirelessly to protect these little birds and let people know, hey, you know, there's beach nesting birds here. And like I said, many times people just aren't aware, but it is so vital for the reproductive success of these, in some cases, um, endangered bird species to protect these babies and make sure, you know, they become healthy adults. So, Kara, I'm, I'm kind of the money person on the show. And, I, you know, let's talk about funding. You just mentioned that a little bit. But how are most of these projects funded or do, do you even address that in the report? We do. So back in 2016, there was a global settlement with BP and other responsible parties for that oil disaster that happened in 2010. That settlement as a whole was just over $20 billion, $16 billion of that is set aside for ecosystem restoration. So those monies just started to flow back in 2017. So Audubon, of course, you know, this is this is an incredible opportunity to restore this beautiful ecosystem back to what it was not only prior to the spill, but to address some of the many ongoing stressors that we've seen, both natural and man-made, hurricanes, coastal land loss, sea level rise. So these monies, this, you know, $16 billion is going to go a long way. It's not enough. I mean, I think we all realize that, you know, this is a large ecosystem. This is an expansive geography and $16 billion, um, when you think about it through that lens, is not that much, but it's a really good start 
to bolster this ecosystem, to make it more resilient over time. So that $1.7 billion in projects, Audubon absolutely is targeting that overall $16 billion um, BP settlement fund. Now, we will be opportunistic. We will be looking outside of those dollars for different funding sources. Yeah, I think that's so important. You make a really good point about, you know, we say billions here like that's nothing, right? You know, no, I didn't say million. I said billions. But, you know, Kara, I think that you're probably a believer like I am that if we don't do the most with what we have, um, that the only thing for sure is that we'll never get any more. And so um, not only do we have to take this opportunity as and think of it as a one time opportunity and do the best as of what we can and maximize it and leverage it and make it go as far as we can. But you kind of hope that you're also laying the groundwork to be able to have more dollars in the future and prove that, you know, you're trustworthy with it too. So I think that's important too. And especially, you know, you're talking about regional projects. I mean, that is just not easy to do and in the scale of what we're talking about too. So I appreciate your points about the funding. Well, great, Kara. Um, One more time, where can people go to check out the report and learn more about Audubon's um, golf conservation plan? So audubon.org slash golf. And I just want to also flag that if anyone is interested in volunteering, you can also go to that webpage and look for our golf contacts. Um, We're always seeking new volunteers for our Coastal Bird Stewardship Program. Yeah, and that should be starting up pretty soon across the Gulf. So no matter where you're listening from, there should be an opportunity nearby uh, to get out there and help protect birds and their habitat. So Kara, thank you so much for being on. Hopefully we'll have have you back as there are more updates. um, We'll have you for Mardi Gras. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, happy happy Mardi Gras whether you're in Mobile. We should go see her for Mardi Gras. (laughs) All right. Well, well, thanks, Kara. We'll be right back with Dr. Eric Johnson. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. ASPN Network, coastal news for the pelagic-minded. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, its wildlife, its jobs, and why restoring matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. And I'm Simone Laws with Restore or Retreat. Frequent guest, guest alert. Frequent, frequent guest, guest alert. I'm so excited <laughs> to have our next frequent guest, who I'm just, you know, in his busy schedule, he's you know, famous at this point with this beautiful feature that was in He was probably Audubon sleeping in the marsh somewhere last night. <laughs> Between being featured in like amazing articles by Audubon Magazine and Times Picayune that our friend Tristan Barrick wrote yeah, yes. um, to like actually going out and doing the work. I don't know how, where he finds the time, but please go check out this latest feature, The Secret Lives of Black Rails and the Scientists Who Seek Them. Eric Johnson is one of those scientists. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Eric. Hey, Eric. Hey, how are you two doing? Good, good. We had to have you back. It had been about a week or two, so we had to have you back. But I have to tell you this story, Eric. Y'all are influencing me so much between you and Jacques that my little boy needed to do research. Um, It was a research project. He's in third grade on an animal. And he decided that he couldn't de- couldn't decide if he wanted to do an eagle or a hawk. So we went on the Audubon website, and he ended up with a common black hawk. So he had to bring the picture to school. We printed it from the Audubon website. But then um, I told him, I was like, hey, when you get to computer class, just go to Audubon.org. <laughs> and you can find all the information there. So I kind of felt like I was helping him cheat, but being a good mom in the same way, you know? 
sure. Well, and it's hard to choose between a hawk and an eagle, right? So how, you, you can't go wrong. Yeah, so he went yeah. on the picture. He went by the picture, which one was coolest. So um, we, maybe he'll have, um, maybe we'll have our, uh, your friend, Dr. Eric, come into, <laughs> come into class and talk Show about and birds. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that. But Jack and I, that's a awesome. You've been getting a lot of ink on black rails, too. Yeah, that's been such a neat project. Uh, we just knew so little about that bird before we started this. And, you know, thanks to funding through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the state wildlife and fisheries. Um, yeah, it's been amazing. Like, they're actually out there. It's just a lot, of, a lot of work to go find them. Yeah, and, I mean, I'm quoting from the article here, but, um, you know, Tristan talks about how he's out on a marsh hunt with you all looking for the rail Come across one. Woo! Johnson yells. He scoops up the rail and holds it gently for all to see. It's dappled gunmetal gray feathers, the bird that doesn't exist. And then it goes on to say, Johnson and Audubon, Louisiana, are collecting one of the continent's rich, richest pools of data on the elusive bird. So oh, that is pretty awesome. cool, Eric. So tell us a little bit about this story and, more importantly, the work that you're doing on black rails. And when was your first black rail? Well, yeah. So Tristan... The, the journalist and, and Will, who who's doing the photography, they were troopers. I mean, that's hard work walking through the marsh at night. Um, it's cool. It's humid. There's mosquitoes everywhere. It's a lot, you know, it's just really interesting and difficult work. So they were real troopers. Um, but, yeah, I think that was the, the 15th or so black rail that we've caught uh, in this project. Um, which already sort of outnumbers collectively all of the previous records before we did the work. So um, it's it's a really tricky bird to see. The first one I ever heard was actually uh, over in Texas, um, but then I found one in Louisiana several years ago before we started the project and started putting the pieces together of what kind of habitat they need, and then we got this funding to really launch in and, and do a, a deep dive exploration and figure out exactly what kind of habitats they're using and how many little patches there might be out there, and it probably, you know, fewer than a, a dozen um, high-quality pieces of habitat left in Louisiana. Eric, you're like a treasure hunter. Do you ever think that? That, like, when you got, you know, that you you found this elusive thing that people have been looking for that you've only heard about? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a little, every little bird is, is worth its weight in gold and more. <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> you're like that. the Indiana Jones of birds. He is. <laughs> he is. That's awesome. Yeah. And Eric, The I holy mean, rail. <laughs> we are on a roll today. That's it's going to end soon. Um, <laughs> well, and so part of it, I mean, the black rail, like many you know species across Louisiana, its its habitat's threatened by land loss um, and sea level rise. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, they live mostly where we're able to find them um, is right on the rim of the Gulf of Mexico and the Chenier Plain, and usually in places where there's a little bit of elevation built up behind the dune, behind the beach. Um, so they seem to like to keep their feet dry. So they're they're a, in this group of marsh birds, but they they don't like wet marshy areas. They like to be a little bit higher up on the ridges, but not when it gets too shrubby. So it's this very specific. Um, this very specific zone and of course with every inch of sea level rise it puts those kinds of habitats um, at greater risk so yeah we're really worried um, that this bird is gonna have a hard time dealing with sea level rise and coastal erosion issues and they probably already have been facing that for for decades so 
we're, we're right on the cusp of losing them, and there's just so much work that needs to be done still. Well, yeah, I mean, please go and read um, the story at audubon.org uh, as well as on NOLA.com. Um, it was jointly produced, jointly published by both outlets and so important, um, uh, highlighting, you know, the work that you all have been doing, but the work that remains for this species and others. Um, shifting gears a little bit, Eric, so we've been talking to Kara about the We gol- have to talk about other birds now. <laughs> The Gulf Conservation Plan, um, and I know that you are deeply involved in the development of the plan as well as the project selection um, for Louisiana, but also regionally. So I guess starting regionally, Kara um, was giving a plug for um, the region-wide coastal stewardship program. I mean, for you, why is that such an important project? I know you've had so much work on that project here in Louisiana and, and helping other states across the Gulf, but why is that such a priority? Yeah, so, so the birds that nest uh, right along the beaches and shorelines are um, some of the most uh, impacted birds uh, because of development, sea level rise, coastal land loss. Uh, so they're just facing a tremendous amount of threat. Um, and, you know, it's even led to several species like the piping plover in the, in the northeast, um, but also snowy plover on the west coast um, being listed as endangered. So we want to steward the birds that nest on these beaches to prevent their populations from declining um, so that they don't become listed. So here on the Gulf Coast, our focal species include uh, things like least tern and Wilson's plover and American oyster catcher, uh, reddish egret. Uh, there's a whole variety of birds um, that need our help. And um, unfortunately, what can happen is that just one disturbance event by an un, you know an unknowing uh, you know human visitor to those nesting areas can really destroy their opportunity to nest for that season um, so it's just really important that we set aside a little bit of, of, of area and, and beach and habitat for these birds to successfully raise their young so that's really what that program is all about and and um, you know we have a foothold all across the Gulf in doing that work um, at Audubon. But uh, there's so much more that needs to be done to recover those bird populations. And you're uh, getting ready to gear up for another season, right? And you're going to be looking for volunteers soon enough. Um, Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, April 1st really kicks off our season. Uh, We'll start to see the first Wilson's plover nest in April and the first least turn nest at the end of April. So um, we need volunteers to come down to places like Grand Isle and Holly Beach um, and help look over the birds and help tell uh, beachgoers why it's important that we protect them and give them a little bit of space and how we can really share the beaches with the birds. Um, it's actually pretty easy to do. We just have to, um, you know, do a lot of education and, and let people know that birds actually nest right on the sand. Um, but many people don't even realize that. So it's, it's there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of education and outreach that, that go along with those programs, and volunteers play a really critical role in that. So let me just get this straight, Eric. Jacques and I could go to the beach and talk to people at the beach about birds, and that would be a good thing? Like, it sounds like a dream. Let's go do that, Jacques. That <laughs> Jacques and I yeah, sign up right now. <laughs> Simone can talk, in case you didn't I know. I can talk. I can talk about birds, too. I'm just reddish egret, you know, just that was my favorite from before. Well, so. And I probably even shouldn't say, but on Grand Isle, we're renting a, a camp, Ugh. and we can put volunteers up for a, a night or two. Mm-hmm. I would Isle, tell all the so. people in Arties all about about the, the piping plovers and 
<laughs> Simone's going to be talking a little bit too much, if you know what I mean, especially if you get her there. So, well, um, Eric, we have one more segment. Do you mind sticking on? Because I want to talk about some of the projects in Louisiana that are part of the golf plan. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get back. So you're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM. Always available online at deltadispatches.org. We'll be right back. From the bottom of the Marianas Trench, this is ASPN, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. News for the pelagic-minded. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Simone Malaz from Restore Retreat. And I'm Jacques Bear with Audubon, Louisiana. And, you know, I'm always late, obviously, for the show. We keep letting like it that. slip, but as <laughs> so long also, as we get it in there, I think we're good. <laughs> so I'm also late with the coastal stat of the week. Um, Audubon scientists identified over 8 million acres of suitable habitat for priority bird species across the Gulf that should be prioritized for restoration conversation. We're obviously conservation we're having that conversation today these habitats include barrier and bay islands headland beaches intertidal bars and flats and saltwater marshes and range from south texas to the florida panhandle that's yeah that's definitely part of the gulf plan and something that our scientists worked on mapping like look at areas across the you know the gulf where are the priority habitats and you can go on the on the plan and kind of see those mapped out obviously the mississippi river delta is a hugely important priority area of ha- priority habitat i believe mobile bay some of the other kind of air- bay um, areas around eight million eight million acres yeah so well eric we have to ask you a fun question now so um i guess my fun question for you is what is your favorite mardi gras tradition slash do you do the cajun mardi gras have you ever done that i've never actually done the cajun mardi gras but this year for the first time we're walking in the crew to shen it's it's the one that my wife and i go to every year with our with our two dogs and so this year we're actually going to walk one of our dogs in the in the parade so i'm really excited about that where is that it's in lafayette is it a dog thing is it yeah Yeah, that's oh cool Yeah. yeah that's fine what are your dog's favorite birds (laughs) <laughs> my i have a i have a black lab and I mean, oh eric <laughs> we, i know we don't we don't hunt her but i'm we, she loves the morning doves that come to her feeders and oh that's her. sweet yeah. <laughs> that's so she funny them in, with intensity <laughs> bet. so shifting gears a little bit back to um the golf conservation plan so eric um talking about priority habitats i mean there's a huge number of priority habitats here in louisiana and louisiana's coast and obviously you know that um you were also out on the chandelure island trip for the audubon magazine story what was that experience like and i heard that you didn't see as many birds as you would have liked yeah it was surprisingly quiet um, when we went out there, very few birds along that little segment of beach that we were able to stop at. I'm not quite sure why. Um, I was getting reports from other people on in Barataria Bay that they were seeing kind of the same thing. So I'm not I'm not sure what was going on. But it's the middle of the winter, um, so it's just a, a sort of a lower time of the year where you you know you don't see as many birds this time of year, in general. And that's um, when. Uh, that's part of the a national wildlife refuge, right, Eric? It's got a yeah, it's an old one. 
Right. It's, it's, and it's one of the oldest ones in the country. And in the summer, though, those islands just pack in with nesting birds. And um, I'm hoping to have an opportunity to go out there this, this May um, to see what kind of birds are nesting on the islands. But, you know, on, on Breton Island uh, to the south um, and then all the way across the Chandelier Chain, there can literally be something like 100,000 um, oh, wow. Nest, nesting pairs of, of birds from pelicans to terns and Wilson's plovers and oyster. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing how many, how many birds actually nest out there. So what is the project that Audubon is recommending? So the project on the, on the chandeliers is still somewhat, um, in, uh, in, in conception, but the idea is to sort of restore, uh, the front areas of, of, a beach habitat, um, coupled with some marsh restoration um, areas on the backside, and then some seagrass restoration behind that. So you sort of create this ecosystem-wide um, restoration project that addresses different components of the of the chandelures, um, which obviously benefits a whole variety of different birds. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the other projects that are uh, part of Louisiana's uh, project list? Well, the big one, obviously, is the mid-Barataria sediment diversion, right? This is this is one of these um, game-changing projects that has been in the uh, you know in people's minds for literally decades, um, and we're and we're finally hoping this is the final push to to implement it. It's a seventy-five thousand cubic feet per second at its maximum. Uh, sediment diversion, which would deliver, uh, it would maximize the delivery of sediment from the Mississippi River back into the Barataria Basin to re-nourish those marshes and help build land. So over 50 years, you could get you could get as much as 80,000 um, acres of, of of wetlands being being built by this diversion. So that is a absolutely critical project. Um, not only for birds, but for fisheries and for you know all all ecosystem wide um, and you know community wide benefits. Mm-hmm. And you've been you've been out to some of the places where you know kind of the rivers built land, whether it's around Carnarvon or down you know kind of Badenese. I mean, you've seen kind of how birds respond. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I mean, that the Carnarvon diversion, it's really spectacular. There's now a colonial nesting waterbird rookery in the very trees that have grown uh, using the new sediment from the river. Um, and that wasn't there, you know, 10 years ago when the when the diversion was still in its infancy. So, and we know those birds are, are moving back and forth to some of the foraging areas that are created by the diversion as well. So it's, it's, it's a really neat small example of, of what a large-scale diversion could be. More to come on that. So what are, there are two more projects. So one, this is one we've talked about before, but Queen Bess Island. Yeah. Yeah, Queen Bess is a great one. It obviously has a historical legacy because it was one of the three islands where brown pelicans were brought back to reintroduce into Louisiana after they went extinct because of the DDT crisis. Um, but unfortunately, that island has been eroding and disappearing over time, and now it's a only five acres left out of its 36-acre potential. So even on those five on those five acres, there's thousands of nesting birds, um, and so the plan is to restore it back to its full potential and expand the uh, amount of area of nesting habitat. Yeah, very soon too. We were in conversations with some friends at CPRA and and Wildlife and Fisheries, and it sounds like the clock's ticking, right? So that that'll be a nice thing to see very soon. 
yeah, with with any luck, if if all the permitting and and engineering and design gets wrapped up, uh, that could go to construction this fall. Wow, another one we'll have to keep tabs on and and maybe maybe see, see? Mm-hmm. yeah ourselves. And then the last project is what? Yeah, it's the it's called the Freshwater Bayou North Marsh Creation. It's a project over in Vermilion Parish, in the Chenier Plain region, and. Um, is 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 on Audubon's oldest and largest sanctuary. So uh, we we have 26,000 acres of coastal wetlands that we manage for for birds and other wildlife. And unfortunately, it's um, been eroding away just like much of the rest of coastal Louisiana because of storms and saltwater intrusion. And so this would help. Um, Help protect the refuge um, and and those those wetlands from the saltwater intrusion from uh, freshwater bayou, and it would rebuild um, uh, it would rebuild a bunch of of coastal wetlands about 400 acres. Yeah, and I mean the Paul J. Rainey Wildlife Sanctuary is such a it's an ecological treasure for Louisiana, and like Eric said, I mean it's been hit by hurricanes, and so that's great to see. You know both for the importance of the sanctuary, but also the wildlife that depend on it. And that one's kind of moving ahead somewhat as well, correct? Yeah, it's going a little slower uh, than we'd been hoping. There's there's all kinds of design and, and permitting issues, lots of pipe old, you know, old pipelines and things like that. But it's moving along. Um, NRCS is doing a great job um, working with what they have to, to be able to push it along. So, um, you know, we're we're hopeful that in the next couple of years that we'll actually move to construction. Great. Well, ideally by 2020. We'll, we'll definitely keep tabs on all of those projects as well as others across the Gulf. And you can too go to audubon.org slash golf. Um, learn more about the priority projects that um, our organization has put out for birds and people across the Gulf and sign up and get involved in this. Is work. that where you can volunteer as well? Yes, to or you can go to, well, I mean, beach if you educator. want to mm-hmm. do it in Grand Island, Holly Beach, go to la.audubon.org, and you can sign up to volunteer with Eric and some of his team uh, in the months ahead. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on. We're going to have to do a tally, because I think you mm, and think, Alicia, yep. it's kind of getting neck and neck here, so we'll have to see who's the leader. Wait till Alicia finds <laughs> out. She'll come back going. <laughs> Well, I hope you have a great time with your dog. Yes. Happy Mardi Gras, Eric. Happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi Gras. All right. Take, the invitation. take care, and thanks as always. Another wonderful show. All right, so what? You give me two weeks until I can do birds again? Well, maybe we'll do oysters next week because <laughs> we haven't given them any love in about a week and a half. So. We'll just keep going back and forth. Well, thank you for obliging me. To- I learned so much. I don't mind. Yeah, okay. Well, that was another wonderful show. Thanks to our guests, Kara Lankford and Eric Johnson, both with Audubon. Um, And thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next week.